welcome to our podcast. We're here today with Ambassador Arthur Sinodinas, son of Greek immigrants from Kefalonia, who left the Senate to take on Australia's most significant overseas post on the 7th of February 2020. Through this time, he's weathered COVID-19 and US elections. A former Treasury official, Chief of Staff to Prime Minister John Howard, elected Senator with economic roles in the Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull governments, he garners respect across the chamber. He was key to some of the most important economic reforms in the Howard government. By impression of educational background, policy and professional experience, Ambassador Sinodinos confounded the stereotype of political staffer on the path to politician. Now a diplomat in the US, Nels Cosmos caught up with him to discuss the first months in his role. So welcome to our podcast. Excellent. Nice to meet you, Mary. Um, when you officially assumed office on the 7th of February, you said it would be an opportunity for your family to regroup following the difficulties of the last few years. Have you achieved this? Um, probably more than we expected because with COVID, we've all been in lockdown for a lot of the time I've been here. The first six weeks I was here, I, we were able to get about and get out. The kids went to school. We got to meet people. Uh, and then we had to go into lockdown work from home. I've got a home office. I'm very lucky. Uh, and the kids have room upstairs. So they had to go into homeschooling, the two younger ones. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time together and it, we'll look back and we'll treasure having the, had that time together. Um, but we're also a bit fatigued and keen to get out and about again. And we've been going out a bit, but we've, we've obviously still got to be careful because, of, you know, COVID's been on the upsurge again over here because of winter and everything else. But you know, as a family, touch wood, we've been very lucky. It's interesting you've been working that way because in your valedictory speech, you had actually um, said that the world of work is changing around us. Flexible work, digitally enabled is the way of the future. So you had actually predicted that more than you um, expected. Well, it, 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 it was easy to predict in the sense that we've seen the trend over time and um, that the world of work is changing and digitization is changing it. But what COVID has done is accelerate a lot of these trends. Mm -hmm. So before a lot of us talk theoretically about how we could work from home if we wanted to, but there was nothing to actually push us to do us. And this did. And what that means is we now have a much better idea of the upsides and the downsides of working from home. So part of the challenge is, depending on what's happening with school, if you have to do both homeschooling and work from home, balancing the needs of the different members of the family, depending what access have they got to machines to do their work, do they get on each other's nerves because everybody's on top of everybody else for so much of the day. Um, we've also learned uh, for some people that maybe are on their own that the social isolation which comes from not being able to go to work and have the camaraderie and the companionship of being at work with other people. So it affects different people in different ways. So we've learned more about the physical impacts, the mental health impacts, but it has accelerated these trends. And the interesting thing will be when COVID lifts, to what extent we go back to a more normal pattern of working activity or whether some of us decide from now on, okay, I might go to the office two days a week. The other three days, I'll work from home or vice versa. You get what I mean? It depends on the nature of your job. Um, like as an ambassador, it's a bit like a politician. You've got to be out there. You've got to be out meeting people. Um, 
But for, there are other jobs where you can do a lot just working from home. So things have been accelerated and changed. The final point I'll make on this, you look at something like telehealth. We spoke about telehealth for a long time. Look at the way it's just exploded now. And we now know it much better. We understand it much better. We know how to do it. We know how to improve it. That's true. Greece's Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, had actually met with a diaspora here a while ago. And um, he suggested, he invited them actually to work from Castellorizo. He said that um, broadband speeds are um, better than ever and that they should just go there and work. Um, would that, you suggest the same thing to um, the that, Australian diaspora? Uh, well, that's that sounds like a great invitation. Um, imagine working from a Greek island, being able to look out the window, look at the ocean, all blue, the sky, all blue. It'd be wonderful. Uh, I'm from Kefalonia originally, so I'd probably pick to work from there rather than Castellorizo, although I know a lot of Castellorizans in Sydney. So would that be the next step after um, America? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think if you want to do something like write a book, the idea of being able to be on an island like Kefalonia, be able to combine a bit of writing in the morning on the Arvo with going for a swim, going to the local taverna, it sounds pretty good, I've got to say. It sounds idyllic. <laughs> Whereabouts from Kefalonia are you? Because um, it's, a, it's a beautiful island. Lixuri. Lixuri, okay. Um, yeah. Just to go back to the world of um, politics and um, diplomacy, Um, they say a politician is one who um, immediately decides to talk for hours about an issue without even thinking, while a diplomat thinks for hours um, to decide not to say anything. What has the transition been like for you? Um, were you always a diplomat at heart? Um, I, I think politics and diplomacy have a lot in common. Uh, part of the job is being out there presenting a point of view, arguing a point of view, uh, being prepared to meet people, be extroverted, be a good host, uh, be able to listen to people, draw them in, understand them. It, it, there are a lot of um, similarities between politics and diplomacy and uh, I'm interested in people so I don't find it hard to meet people and talk to them uh, and I, I think I'm not a bad listener and I, one of the things I learned in politics is if possible listen more than you talk because you're right. You can, as a politician, you've got to try and earn your keep. So you think, I've got to show I know all this, so I've got to talk and talk. Whereas the secret probably is to listen and understand. In the South Pacific, they have a theory about leadership, which is that you go around the whole group, get their points of view, and the leader actually speaks last and gives everyone the opportunity to have their say and then sums it up. The leader is someone who tries to synthesize and is a decision maker. That is, um, I think that's, these are, that's a great advice for anyone, whether they're a politician or a journo or anything, anyone in life. Um, you've been described as a pillar of Greek-Australian society and you're obviously representing um, Australia in the United States, but what has your relationship been like with um, Greek-Americans during the past uh, few months? It's it's been limited because of COVID, but uh, I've our local Greek Orthodox cathedral here, Saint Sophia, yes, Sophia. I've been there a few times, particularly earlier on. I've met the Greek Orthodox Archbishop Elpidophoros, uh, and I've also struck up a relationship with the Greek ambassador, the uh, Cypriot ambassador, 
and the Greek ambassador who's representing the EU mm-hmm. here in, in Washington. And I've spoken with people in the Greek community, but I haven't had a chance to get more involved. Um, at one stage, I was speaking to one of the, the local Greeks who was actually in one of the islands. I think he may have even been in Castellorizo. And we were putting together a list of local Greeks that I wanted to catch up with because um, I've always felt very much at home in the Greek community. Uh, it's very much part of our life and uh, we're keen to have it as part of our life here in the US. Are you aware of the Greek Washington lobby? Have they approached you? Uh, no, they haven't approached me as yet because uh, I've been mainly focused on the sort of issues to do with Australia and the region. But uh, I'm keen to pursue and speak to them because uh, I think they're quite an extensive lobby. They've been doing it a long time. There may well be lessons that Australian Greeks can take from the way that American Greeks have participated in the political process. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Um, at your at your farewell dinner held by the Greek community of Melbourne um, last year, you'd said you were grateful to speak Greek before you learned English. And you said Australia yes. is an immigrant nation. It's in our DNA. I guess the same is the case in the United States. Um, but who does multiculturalism better? Um, look, yeah, it, that's a good question. The way the US used to do immigration was it was the melting pot. Mm. It would take people from all around the world they went into this big machine and they came out as Americans in some form or other, to a greater or lesser degree. They, they I think, prided themselves on being the melting pot. Um, in more recent years, immigration has been a more controversial issue here, issues around legal versus illegal immigration and, and, and the rest of it. Um, we've taken a different approach to multiculturalism. We had more of a policy around multiculturalism, whereas in the US it's been organic the way things have developed. They have formal immigration policies, but they've never had multicultural and settlement policies quite in the way that we have had in Australia. I think we've had quite a systematic approach. Uh, And while they pride themselves here on being an immigrant nation, I think we've been very good at playing up both the fact that we're an immigrant nation and a successful multicultural community. And there are things we do that I think around countering violent extremism, for example, countering radicalization of people, that maybe that's something we can work with the US on and learn from each other. Mm. Well, they say that the US is a melting pot, but Australia is more of a tossed salad. Um, Yes. Yeah, so... um, just let's look at languages for a little while. Um, can I just ask a question about the loss of languages? Something that um, is uh, concerning our community at the moment is that Latrobe University is considering the termination of the Greek language program, the last of its kind. Um, what's your opinion on that? Look, um, as you mentioned earlier, I was quite proud of the fact that I learned Greek before I learned English. And by doing it that way, I think it helped me when I went to Greek school to reinforce what I learned. And by having a second language, I think it helps cognitive development. So I think from that point of view, it's something that we should pursue for all our children. I think the question of having Greek studies at university, the importance of that is that uh, it's also a link, obviously, to classical Greek and history, which is important, I think, to continue because it reminds people of the origins of Western civilization, so much of which was in classical Greece. Uh, And I think also having a cadre of young people who learn Greek and appreciate their culture is important in 
having a more rounded view of their own identity. Um, it is a challenge for universities because, you know, courses depend on the number of people available, what they're prepared to pay for a course, how much is it cost to put a course on. Mm. So it, it's a challenge, but, you know, the Greek community has rallied around a lot and supported language courses continuing, and I think it's a good thing that they do that. Do your children speak Greek? Uh, limited, because they haven't been to Greek school. When I was growing up, uh, particularly my sister and I, uh, we're three in the family, but particularly me and my sister, who's closest to me in age, went to uh, Greek school two or three times a week. Mm. So um, it was a bit of a drag if you'd had a full day at school to go to Greek school. But looking back, I don't regret it. I think it was important to reinforce our understanding of our heritage, our language and our history. Okay, and now just to move on to politics, what has it been like for you as Australia's ambassador during the US elections when Joe Biden is recognised as president-elect but Donald Trump is still tweeting victory? Uh, well, yes, we're going to through a transition of one sort or another. Our Prime Minister decided to congratulate the president-elect um, fairly early on when it was clear based on the projections that were being made that the, Mr. Biden would win the election, President-elect Biden would win the election. So we're now going through a process of um, potentially some court cases, challenging results in various um, jurisdictions. The, the best advice around seems to be that that's unlikely to overturn the result. So at some stage, there will be a transition. Uh, in any case, the, here in the US, the government is the government until the 20th of January then the president's term is up, then there's a new president. And if they haven't resolved it by then, the Speaker of the House becomes the acting president. But I don't think we'll reach that stage. I think through the latter part of this month and into early next month, the election will be certified in various states. And then those results go to the Electoral College in the middle of the, the month. They get counted there. They get, And then that will indicate that the president-elect has won the election and then they they move on. Has it been hard for you in this environment, though, not knowing what's um, happening to, look, look, to navigate um, um, your role? Can, can I be honest? 2020 has been such a year that the fact that it is ending like this should be no surprise to any of us, really. I mean, if you told me at the beginning of the year I'd be facing, when I got into this job, a pandemic, the biggest economic contraction since yeah, the Great Depression, mm -hmm. racial protests, a very fractious and divisive election campaign and a drawn-out transition, I would have said, mm, that's a pretty extreme scenario, but that's 2020. So to some extent, I guess I'm saying we factored in that things were not going to go in a normal way. How has it changed your vision? Um, during your valedictory speech, you'd stressed the need for nations to stand by global norms established over the last 70 years. But would you say now that globalisation is under threat? Has that changed the way that you are doing your job there? I still have a conviction that th those things are right, that having rules that help small countries and big countries to be able to live and work together are important, uh, and that the sort of order that was put together after World War II has broadly served us very well for the last 70 years. And so we shouldn't necessarily be um, thinking about throwing it overboard. It's really, okay, with the rise of China, um, can we find a way to accommodate that within this rules-based order? So for countries the size of Australia, middle power, countries the size of Greece, we benefit 
from being able to observe the same rules as big countries and vice versa. So it's not the law of the jungle and the strongest just doing whatever they want. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm about. And being in this job at this time has reinforced my conviction that that's what we need to do. With heightened tensions between the US and China, um, what does this mean for Australia? Can we build this situation to our advantage? The situation between the US and China? Yes. Well, I think on one level, what happening in the US where they're looking at their strategic competition with China means there are areas where they're maybe not going to be doing as much with China. Mm-hmm. And there are areas where maybe we can do more with the US. I'm thinking particularly of areas of critical technology, areas around national security, where as trusted partners, we can work together. Mm-hmm. And science as well, I, I guess. Science underpins a lot of these critical technologies artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, hypersonics, space. You go through the list, a lot of areas that we've uh, developed uh, expertise in in Australia that I think we can work with the US on. And there are areas where the US is looking to work with trusted partners because it's not as trusting in its relationship as it was with China, as China continues to grow and as China continues to become technologically more advanced and more able to exert power and influence in the region. Do you think Mr Biden might be convinced of the benefits of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which um, Mr Trump uh, had pulled out of upon his election? Look, that's one of the things we want to raise. We we wanted to raise it with Trump 2.0, but if it's a Biden administration, we want to raise it with them. Now, at this stage, our argument is partly economic benefit, but also strategic benefit that having the US as part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership with other 11 major countries from the region is a big statement about the US commitment to the region and that the US recognises how vital and uh, growing a region this is. And by them being in there, it helps to promote the quality of the trade agreements, the standards that countries have to meet. Um, We recognise it may not be easy for a Biden administration to do a big agreement like that early on. Um, with the Congress because the Congress is more wary of trade agreements than they used to be because, as we were talking earlier, there's quite a feeling that globalisation has left some parts of America behind. But we will start off with trade areas where we think they'll be interested, whether it's digital trade, trade in health, trade in environmental goods and services, areas where we can do mini agreements, but they're ones that don't have a big political downside for a Biden administration, but which get them more engaged because the important thing is for them to continue to be engaged in our part of the world. Mm. There's a lot of speculation um, and the speculation that Joe Biden would restore stability, but are we really going to see spectacular changes or do you think the relation is pretty between Australia and the US is pretty solid and it's just going to continue the Look, way it has? It is a solid relationship. It's built on on common values, it's built on defence and security interests, which outlast any one government of of either persuasion here or over there. Um, That will continue. But this is about what are the opportunities going forward to work together to build a better world, Mm -hmm. what we can do to build a world that reflects the sort of values that we talk about, decent, humane, universal values, and which... Joe Biden has spoken about at at great length in terms of promoting democracy, the rule of law, 
the value of the individual and so on and so forth, human rights for people, etc. And just to round up, will this better world also mean that um, that uh, Mr. Morrison will have to pivot on the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement and um, and uh, join in the battle against climate change? We've, in his uh, letter to the um, the, the, the president elect. Um, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, made it clear that we were happy to cooperate in areas around climate change. The, the sort of investment in climate technologies, renewable energy and all the rest of it that Joe Biden is talking about, these are areas that are common with the sort of investments we're talking about in low emission technology. Um, on the issue of targets, our view is there can be a debate about targets in due course because we have commitments to review our targets in due course. But what we're trying to work out here is how do you get to the target? And what we're saying is we prefer a technology approach than doing it through taxes or regulatory mechanisms. I thank you very much for your time and uh, for agreeing to meet with us this morning. Thanks, Mary. It's, it's great to catch up and good luck. Goodbye and good luck over there.